Good evening. I am a Chennai Kaveri Alvar Pet Branch. Proudly presents this webinar, which is first of its kind for us, but it's going to open the door for many such meetings in the future. I'm Dr. Bhuvaneshwari, neurologist and secretary of this branch. I also extend a warm welcome to all on behalf of our president, Dr. Sivaramakannan. Today we'll be focusing on emergency and critical care management during pandemic. We have two speakers. First speaker is Dr. Sridhar, our chief intensivist, who will be speaking about the management of uh, patients who have severe COVID infection. Our second speaker is Dr. Vijay Lakshmi. She's our infection disease specialist. She will be talking about evaluation of patients with fever. I hope you will have a very enlightening session of listening to both our expert COVID warriors. And please pose your questions at the end of the session to our experts. They will answer your questions. Thank you. Enjoy the session. Uh, good evening, one and all. Uh, thank you, Dr. Bhavana, for the kind introduction. So today is actually my day off. Uh, you know I'm here in Chennai and working in one of the busiest ICUs in Chennai. So I asked my management, can I have one day where I don't see anybody with COVID but I don't think about COVID. So management with their twisted sense of humor said, right, here is a day off. You will not see anybody COVID. You will not think about COVID, but you will end up talking about COVID. So here I am in front of all of you, I'm going to talk about my experience with COVID over the last few months. Uh, so my topic is management of severe COVID. And I thought I'll break it down into what I'm going to cover. I think COVID is a illness which has got a wide spectrum. You can have somebody who's completely asymptomatic. At the other end, you can have somebody who's got severe organ failure needing life support in ICU. So I think what, what becomes important for all of us as practicing physicians is to be able to recognize the sickest one of them, the ones that are classified as severe COVID. And then what tests we do to help us in further management and what therapeutic options we have for them. So by and large, my philosophy in managing any patient is less is more. Use the minimum number of medications, the minimum number of interventions, only those that have been proven by evidence to work to manage these patients. Because as you know, most medications interventions have either side effects or complications, which we are keen to avoid. I believe in the, I strongly believe in the less is more philosophy. To summarize, COVID is essentially an immunothrombotic illness. You have a viremic phase, and then you have an immune response, and we know there's a lot of thrombosis that is happening and the main target organ although it can affect any part of the body appears to be the lungs and it the most severe patients end up having acute lung injury or ARDS. In common parlance it is nothing but wet lungs. The lungs are extremely wet and this is what causes most of the problems. So how do we know those patients of all the patients with COVID who are those that are severely affected? It's quite uh, straightforward really. The mild, the asymptomatic ones are quite obvious. They have it, they carry it, but they don't have any symptoms. The mild ones have symptoms. The symptoms we all know about, fever, cough, um, loss of sense of taste, loss of sense of smell, uh, extreme weakness, sometimes diarrhea. The patients who fall into the moderate category 
have these symptoms and may additionally have clinical or radiological features of pneumonia. So how do we identify those who fall into the severe category and those who we need to worry about and those will almost certainly need us to admit them in hospital and keep a close eye on it. One, they usually present a sensation of dyspnea. They say as they do their normal activities, they're getting more and more tired and more and more breathless, although some of them may not have the symptoms. Oh, I look for three things in this patient. The first time is I look at the patient and see if there are any signs of respiratory distress or any signs of tachypnea. So for want of a number to help us diagnose, anybody with a respirate more than 30, I would worry about. And the signs of tachypnea are people who are using, who are working really hard to breathe while they're talking to me, who are using their axillary muscles of respiration, or those who are unable to talk in full sentences. The other test we use is, is a pulse oximeter. It's quite widely available. And they just put a probe on, and the saturation is less than 93. Then once again, that's a worrying sign. Um, we can do RT-PCRs, but they take time to come back. So the next best alternative is to get a CT or a chest X-ray. Personally, I would prefer a CT if that's available for you. And if the CT reports come back in our hospital one day, tell us about how likely it is going to be COVID, how certain they are, and also how severe the COVID is. So we use a scoring system which scores the severity of lung injury out of 25. So anything more than 50% lung involvement is bad, which equates to a CT score of about 13 or 14. So anywhere, anybody with a score of more than 13 or 14 or 25, which equates to a lung involvement of 50% says this person has got severe COVID. And then the next stage is the one who are critical and they have organ failure, severe ARDS, needing ventilation or shock. So how does the illness proceed? From the day of onset of symptoms, usually patients have symptoms for the first week. They don't usually tend to present severely ill in the very first week of symptoms. The first week is usually the viremic phase where the virus is replicating. It is usually when they go into the day six, day seven after illness, when the immune response to the virus kicks in, that we start seeing them getting more and more dyspneic and they start becoming sick and they might need to come to the uh, ICU for this. So this is an illness that is worst in the second week. What tests we do? It's quite standard really, complete blood count, renal function tests. We do a CRP as an assessment of how much in inflammation is going on. We do D-dimer because we know that this is an immunothrombotic illness. So we need to be wary of those people whose D-dimers are high or showing a rising trend. We need imaging to quantify the extent of illness. And if you're worried about there being a bacterial superinfection, then we need to do procalcitonin and blood cultures. Generally, the white cell count in pure virus illnesses is normal. That's what we find. So quickly moving on to the treatment options. Um, I use the four Ds. These four Ds are standard for anybody with uh, severe COVID. The four Ds being diuretics, daltabarin, dexamethasone, and down-facing. In other words, lying prone. So let me just go over this gradually over the rest of the talk. And then I'm sure you're all eager to ask us in the question and answer session about uh, the various new medicines, Tuslizumab, Remdesivir, Colchicin, Favipiravir. These are not our standard management. So as I said, in the investigations as itself, we do not do... Uh, interleukin-6 levels or ferritin levels routinely. They are inflammatory markers. We expect them to be high. 
and I did not think there's any added value by doing these tests on patients who are coming in. Uh, likewise, these other medicines like tocilizumab and remdesivir, we do not use routinely. Uh, we use it only the family insists that we use something or the patient is becoming more and more severely ill and we have no other options. Then on compassionate grounds, uh, we can use tocilizumab or remdesivir, but they are not our standard of care. We do not use them in routine practice. So you might ask me, if you don't use these drugs, what do you do in a routine practice? Okay, so one of the things that we know is that this is a viral ARDS and two proven therapies in viral ARDS who are not on intubation, who are not ventilated is one negative fluid balance or conservative fluid balance. So what this means is we must definitely not get these patients into a fluid overloaded state. So sometimes I have patients who are coming from other hospitals who have got severe COVID and they have been routinely started on fluids at about 100 ml per hour. And 100 ml per hour is almost two and a half liters a day. And we have good studies in other patients with viral ARDS in those people who have conservative fluid balance or neutral fluid balance or negative fluid balance, their length of stay in ICU is less, their duration of being on the ventilator is less. And there is also a trend towards decreased mortality in people who have been managed conservatively with fluids. In other words, try and keep these people either neutral balance or even negative fluid balance. If they are not very ill, I tend to give them frusamide 40 milligram twice a day to try and ensure that their lungs don't get wet because the ultimate pathology in these people is ARDS or wet lungs. So I would like to run my patients dry. If you do not want to do that, please ensure that your patients are not getting overloaded. Ideally, dry, I'm very happy if they say, uh, today the patient is negative fluid balance of 500 ml. And this is my experience. So this is a patient who was transferred to us from a different hospital on 100% oxygen, saturating about 90, almost certainly going to be intubated. We started aggressive dialysis. So I said, I give frusamide 40 milligram IVBD, but this patient was quite sick that we started this patient on a frusamide infusion of 10 milligram per hour IV. And this is his X-ray 48 hours later. I'm pleased to say that this patient we managed with high nasal oxygen and non-invasive ventilation without needing intubating ventilation. So diuretic is my first D or if you're not yet convinced, at least conservative fluid balance uh, without trying to get them to a positive. My second D is Delta Parent. Once again, this is just uh, a way of making it simplified for me to remember. Uh, by Delta Parent, I mean low molecular weight heparin. We know that there's a thrombotic illness we are seeing an increase in number of young people who are presenting with large strokes due to big clots in major vessels. We are seeing an increase in the incidence of pulmonary embolism. We are seeing an increase in incidence of DVT in patients who have suffered uh, from COVID. So what do we do with these patients? How do we prevent these complications from happening in these patients? We all know what the prophylactic dose of dialtaparinus is about 5,000 units subcutaneous once daily. We also know what is the treatment dose of dialtapan. It's about 7,500 units twice a day. And this is used in people with DVD, with uh, proven pulmonary embolism to actually treat these people. So what I do is I do is a half measure. So the patient has got moderate illness and is admitted to hospital and is walking about doing their normal activities. Then I give them only prophylactic dialtapan. But if the patient is needing oxygen, by definition, they become uh, critical 
and it means because they are oxygen their mobility will be restricted because they might be able to take the nasal prongs off for a short while but they're going to come back the mobility is restricted so rather than go in for treatment dose delta pan which has got other side effects remember uh, so i would use a halfway house in between i tend to use intermediate dose delta pan which is delta pan 5000 bd in people who are hypoxic and admitted to the hospital so by this i'm hoping to reduce the incidence of thrombosis without exposing them to risks of full dose anticoagulation when would i use full dose anticoagulation in those who have confirmed that there is um, a clot in the legs by using a venous doppler uh, a pop little vein thrombus or in whom i've done a ctp and found a pe or in somebody if you ask me an arbitrary value then somebody with a d dimer value of greater than 3000 normally it's less than 500 i would probably go for treatment dose delta pan in this group of patients what are the other options we have dexamethasone this is the only drug proven to save lives in people so you all must have come across this recovery trial that was done in oxford so a simple drug a cost effective drug that is proven to save lives um, but i think we must be careful in which group of patients we used to if you remember the my initial slides uh, i said that the initial phase is one of viral replication phase it's only after the first week that uh, it is the immune response phase and this is when patients go into hypoxemia and lung injury so dexamethasone must not be used early on in the illness it must not be used in hypoxic patients where it can actually cause harm but definitely it has to be used in those people who are hypoxic needing oxygen or those on the ventilator and we all know what a wonderful drug dexamethasone is but i want to draw your attention and give you a uh, different perspective rather than saying dexamethasone saves lives we can look at this concept of number needed to treat how many people needed to be treated with dexamethasone for one additional life to be saved so this is what this is about uh, so for patients on ventilator if we use this wonderful life saving drug for every eight patients who are treated only one of them one additional life will be saved okay whereas if you treat people with hypoxemia we need to treat 25 people with hypoxemia for one additional life to be saved and now you understand that 24 people may not benefit and if you use it in non hypoxic people not only do you not give this drug to people who do not benefit you can actually cause harm and remember we are using drugs like daltaparin in these people we are using drugs like dexamethasone all of which will increase the risk of uh, gi bleed so you must be very careful and use these drugs only in appropriately chosen patients in other words those who are hypoxic or on the ventilator the one thing that is very uh, dramatic and uh, you know you can watch the patients oxygen levels improve in front of your eyes is awake proning i'm sure you all come across this words wherein the patient is on oxygen to whatever source you are uh, willing to give whatever system you are willing to administer it through and then their saturation is about 85 and then you turn the patient and make them lie prone awake in a matter of 10 to 15 minutes you can see their oxygen levels go up and it's quite impressive particularly in some people where the oxygen levels can go up from 85 to almost 95 96 and some people even 99% we know prone ventilation works in viral ards there are a lot of studies that have shown that it works uh, in these people who are intubated and ventilated there is no doubt uh, that prone ventilation is good for them and it's a standard of care in icus all over the world and when we prone them we try and keep them prone for 18 hours it may not be possible to achieve such lens in these people because they are awake if they are able to keep themselves prone for as long as possible i would be happy with that 
I would try to push for at least two to four hours for maximum benefit, but I have seen quite a few patients who are determined and lie much longer than that. So how does proning help? It's a very uh, simple measure. How can something as simple as proning helps? I mean, we all know what ARDS is all about. ARDS is wet lungs. So we have alveolus, we have capillary. Uh, so you have the ventilator alveolus that's full of oxygen. So the blue blood going in the capillary to that becomes oxygenated, comes out as red blood. On the, uh, the other alveolus, on the other hand, is wet. It's full of fluid because of uh, ARDS or the alveolus has collapsed. So the blood flow to this uh, alveolus, which is not taking part in gas exchange, is going to carry out deoxygenated blood. So there is a ventilation perfusion mismatch, and this is why there is hypoxemia in these patients. So how will proning help? You know, the alveoli are full of fluid. How does making them lie prone suddenly improve oxygenation? I think the analogy that best enables us to understand this is in case of ARDS, the lungs are wet. They are like a sponge that is wet. So if we dip a sponge in water and we take it out, after all the water leaks out and they put a sponge on the table, you know that the bottom half of the sponge contains more wetness. It is more wet than the top half of the sponge. Just by gravity alone, we understand that this will happen. If we say the lung is a sponge, then in somebody who is lying down, whichever position, the dependent alveoli are much more likely to be wet. So if you look at it, if you see, see the lung as a sponge and you see the top picture where you can see two round sponges as an analogy for lung, in the dependent portion, below the halfway mark, you find that the alveoli are wet, just like the wet sponge, whereas the alveoli in the top half of the sponge are round and full of air and they can take part in gas exchange. And now this becomes even more interesting. So what happens if you prone them? Okay, the lungs that were initially in the front are now going to become wet and the lungs that were in the back are now going to become free of lungs. So 50% of lung, irrespective of which position the patient lies in, is going to be wet. So how does really turning patient from supine to prone really improve things? Irrespective of the position, half your lungs are going to be gone. This is where a little bit more insight into how it works makes it a lot more interesting. So if you look at the shape of the lungs, they are not rectangular like your average sponge, they are not oval or round. If you look at a CT scan, the top CT scan, the closest geometrical figure that comes to mind is the lungs are triangular. They have an apex at the top and a wide base. Both the left lung and the right lung, they have an apex at the top and they are actually triangular in shape. And now when we understand this and we go back and now if you see when the patient is lying supine, most of the lungs are at the back. So almost 75% of the lung, if you look at the border picture, Below the halfway line, 75% of the lung is atelectatic or collapsed and not able to take part in gas exchange. And only 25% of the lungs are open and able to take part in gas exchange. And now if you prone them, we see that the part of the lung that is collapsed is only 25%. And now 75% of the lung which originally formed the basis when patient was lying supine are now open and able to take part in gas exchange. So it's not 50-50 like in the usual figure. It is more like 25-75. And this is called shape matching. For those of you interested, you can go and look up shape matching in ARDS and you can read up a lot more. The other thing we need to remember is in the supine position, the heart is an anterior structure like in the top picture here. It's going to press backwards on the lung and already this lung is atelectatic, wet and collapsed. And the weight of the heart squeezing the lungs makes it even more harder for these uh, alveoli to take part in gas exchange. 
But the moment you prone them, the heart, which is an anterior structure, is going to come forward and lie on the sternum and the rib cage. It is no longer compressing the alveoli, and you see a lot more alveoli are able to take part in gas exchange. So this is the physiology between be, behind how making somebody prone actually helps improve oxygenation. And this is a critical part of the way we, in which we manage our patient. Anybody who's hypoxic, after we ensure that they've got conservative fluid balance, we see how we can prone them and how long they can lie prone to improve their oxygenation. Once we have done all this, uh, we choose a variety of oxygen systems. Not all of us may have all of this available. So nasal cannula, anywhere between two to six liters to try and improve oxygenation. If that doesn't work, we can use Venturi mask, which can go up to 60% FiO2. And then my next favorite device is the high flow nasal cannula at the bottom. This is able to give 60 liters per minute of oxygen and you can give FiO2s up to 80-90%. But what, what, what would you do if you have a setting wherein you do not have a high flow nasal oxygen system? Then we must use the poor man's high flow nasal oxygen system because remember, as the move to a more and more higher, more expensive system, what we are able to do is able to give a high flow of oxygen able to meet the peak inspiratory flow needs of this patient who is hypoxic. So in nasal cannula and venturi mask, maximum it can give 4 liters, 10 liters, something like that. But if you are really struggling and you have a sick patient, you do not have access to high flow nasal oxygen or NIV, then a trick that you can do is you can put, you need two oxygen sources for this, either the two wall mounted oxygen or you have one wall mounted oxygen, one wall mounted oxygen and an oxygen cylinder. So you connect the nasal cannula to the oxygen cylinder, put it onto the patient and give 6 liters, 8 liters through it. On top of this, you can put an oxygen mask onto the patient, preferably one with a reservoir bag, and then you connect it to a wall mounted oxygen source and give 15 liters per minute. So in this way, we are trying to give more and more peak flow of oxygen. Be very careful if you live in a, if you're working in a setting wherein your oxygen flows are, li are limited because you will be using a lot of oxygen in these systems. And another trick is often you say 15 liters per minute is what your oxygen flow meter is, but turn it anti-clockwise more and more. It's you can give a quite a bit more than the 15 liters per minute that it says on the flow meter. If you have access, then there's nothing like a high flow nasal oxygen system because not only does it give high flow, it also humidifies it and possibly blows out a little bit of carbon dioxide because of the high flow going through the dead space and possibly also generates a little bit of peep, especially the patients keep, it, keep the mouth open, which can recruit collapsed alveoli. When all this don't work, or if the patient has got background problem like obesity, hyperventilation syndrome, or obstructive airway disease, then we might have to use the NIV. Uh, the NIV is uh, a way in which we can give either CPAP, which recruits collapsed alveoli, or we can even give a bit of support to eliminate carbon dioxide by giving two levels of PEEP, the IPAP and the EPAP. We normally start at 5 and 15, FIO2 of whatever is required to keep the saturation about 90. And if all these fail, then uh, we'll have to end up uh, intubating the patient. I'll not go into how we end up intubating the patient. I mean, uh, into what precautions to take while intubating the patient. These are all uh, widely available on the net. How do we decide that patient needs intubation? So respiratory failure. Respiratory failure, two types, type 1, type 2. So severe hypoxemia, despite maximal oxygen giving the patient saturation remains low. I personally am comfortable when the patient saturation is about 90%, but if despite your maximal oxygen therapy, patient saturation is low and the patient's oxygen levels are deteriorating or your carbon dioxide levels are rising, so dropping 
SADs, dropping PO2, rising carbon dioxide, or the patient is becoming more and more encephalopathic and less able to cooperate with you. Some patients are there sitting on a lot of oxygen, but they're fully cooperative with you. You can have a decent conversation with them. They try and help themselves as much as you can, and quite a few patients fall into this group. Then we can persevere a little bit longer without intubating them. But once they start getting encephalopathic, once they start getting tired, once they start becoming unable to cooperate, unable to lie prone, then you're heading towards intubation. The other sign is clearly they start to fatigue and even talking to you exhausts them. Okay. So once you go on the ventilator, what do we do? Um, once again, we know from our previous experience in dealing with ARDS that tidal volume is very important. 6 mLs per tidal, 6 mLs per kilogram. In other words, no patient with ARDS should have a tidal volume more than 450 mL. Nobody should get more than 500 mL. Ideally, 400 to 450 should cover uh, most people with ARDS. Anybody getting more than 500 mL, your ventilation is doing more harm than good. And then we can do an inspiratory pause on your ventilator, measure the plateau pressures, and try and keep the plateau pressures less than 30 centimeters. One thing we are finding in people who are ventilated or on a, with ARDS is the amount of peep that they need is less. We are finding that as we titrate the peep up and down, they are having maximal tidal volume, maximal compliance uh, on the pressure control mode at a lower peep. So I am finding most of the people who are ending up on the ventilator are comfortable using lower peeps. Uh, this is something to watch out for. This is uh, a patient who has had ARDS for quite some time. You can see some fiber optic changes. But you can also see cystic changes. So these patients, if you use very high airway pressures or very high peeps, must always be aware that ventilation can cause uh, pneumothorax in these patients, something to watch out for. So uh, to summarize, uh, it is important to recognize patients who are sick. Uh, so these are patients who are uh, either complaining of breathlessness or have saturation less than 93 or whose respiratory rate is more than 30 or who have got extensive lung involvement on CT. For these patients, it's important to maintain conservative fluid strategy. Definitely do not get them fluid overloaded. If you believe what I say and you believe negative fluid balance is good for them, please use diuretics. In, in patients who are stable, we use 40 milligram IVBD. In patients who are sick, we use 5 to 10 milligram per hour. And when you use it, I see my patient's urea rise. So our normal urea range is about 15 to 45. I would accept the urea going up to even 90 or even 100 as a sign that we are keeping running them dry. The second uh, thing that we do is we put them on intermediate dose delta parin, especially if they've got severe COVID, which is delta parin 5000 units BD. Clearly, they're going to renal failure. You need to modify the dose adjustments. We put all our hypoxic patients on dexamethasone, 6 milligram once a day for 10 days. Um, and we encourage our patients to do proning. Uh, we do not routinely measure interleukin levels or uh, use tocilizumab or remdesivir. But in patients who are deteriorating despite maximum treatment, we would consider either of these two options and use them if they are available, although it is not our routine standard of care. Uh, thank you, and I look forward to your uh, interacting with you on the question session. Anakam, thanks for the kind words, Bona. So after this exhaustive session with uh, Dr. Sridhar, we're going to have a simple session. We're going to discuss about how to handle a patient presenting with fever during this pandemic. So starting off, fever can, I'm talking only about acute fevers now. I'm not talking about prolonged fevers. 
So COVID doesn't really present with prolonged fevers. Management of prolonged fevers aren't going to change much. So somebody comes with acute fever, two weeks. We are worried it could be COVID, it could be non-COVID. How to we assess them? How do we go about? How do we protect ourselves? That's what we're going to discuss in the next half an hour or so. So when somebody comes in the usual variation, like the age, sex variation, like female have certain predisposition, male children have some predisposition, immune differences like diabetes, patients with CKD, they have different kind of infections, exposure to another patient, all those things we take into consideration. And also when they come present to OPD, either to fever clinic, ER, inpatients, the differences come there too. So we'll start off with the presentations in COVID. The common presentations COVID is usually a flu-like syndrome, fever, cough, cold. This can happen in a flu also, your usual influenza. They can present like an atypical infection, atypical pneumonia with respiratory failure. Again, it can come with any kind of respiratory infection. They can present as an MI, acute heart attacks. They can present with diarrheas. In children, they can present as an acute abdomen. You will assume it's appendicitis, it will turn out to be COVID. They can present with immune manifestation like Kabasaki-like syndromes. They can present like a glulian barre. Uh, finally, they can also present fever and septic shock kind of picture, multi-organ dysfunction. Patient presenting and crashing in front of your eyes, not able to do anything, still take protection. So, when the patient has come, you have done the protein test, you are still awaiting the RT-PCR, you have not done the RT-PCR, when do we think about COVID? Like for example, the commonest thing is your CBC, CRP, most of us do it. An elevated CRP, normal total count with lymphopenia. These patients will have counts of 4,000 to 6,000 with lymphocytes of being 8% or 10%. A relative neutrophilia will be there. That's characteristically seen in COVID infections. Lot of variable things. D-dimer may be elevated, Procal can be elevated, Tropi can be elevated, LDH, ferritin, all these things can be elevated. Now, if somebody comes in, how do you assess whether they have COVID or not? So, apart from the examination history taking, three things. Always have a questionnaire. Because Chennai has gone more into the epidemic, now we don't use a questionnaire anybody anymore. Anybody comes with fever, cough and cold, we all definitely screen for COVID. In areas where the incidence is less, you can still have a questionnaire about the symptoms, any symptoms in the family member, any exposure to a COVID patient, any work in high-risk profession like doctors, nurses, police people, those kind of things. You can also get a self-declaration saying that whatever they are saying is true because it makes them come out with more truth. Next, how do we go about an RT-PCR throat swab is what is used more often. And again, remember, as the epidemic advances, as the lab starts doing more and more tests, experience becomes much more. So what comes out to be around 60%, 50% positivity may become 70%, 80% positivity. But remember, one COVID PCR may not be adequate to rule out COVID. A positive COVID PCR kind of figures or helps you out to decide it's COVID. HRC teaches. Somebody presenting with some kind of a fever with shortness of breath. As normal CT essentially rules out COVID. Again, it's only people presenting with shortness of breath. Early, early fever, CT doesn't figure out anything. Antibody essays and diagnosis, there's no rule. So this is uh, based upon a trial and some recommendation. They're saying you don't need to do imaging for everybody. Somebody is asymptomatic. For example, I have COVID. Then I screen my family member. Family member is completely asymptomatic. You don't need to do any investigation. So, routine imaging is not mandatory, but somebody comes symptomatic, a CT test or an X-ray test is really going to help you a lot, rule out a lot of stuff. Next, the role of CT scan. So, in, like most of us are in areas where there is no problem with availability of stuff. You have, even in government centers, CT is easily available, RTPCR is easily available. 
So we will decide about areas where everything is available. In that kind of setup, if somebody comes symptomatic, for example, more than one week of fever, somebody comes with breathlessness, CT yield is quite high. The simple logistic means somebody with upper respiratory tract infection seldom has fever more than five days. But by the time they have come with one week of fever, there will be at least some involvement of lung parenchyma. I'm talking about the usual presentation. A CT scan essentially, a normal CT scan essentially rules up COVID in the presence of breathless loss. Next comes, uh, this is the sensitivity specificity of uh, RT-PCR and CT scan. RT-PCR doesn't have a great sensitivity. Specificity is good, also goes on longer in time. A CT, if somebody, let's say somebody presents have a sec, 7 days of fever or 10 days of fever, negative CT essentially rules out pneumonia. I'm talking about COVID pneumonia. So this is how do you RT-PCR. See, you have to go and touch the nasopharynx. If it goes up and touches the palate, it doesn't really work out much. So it is, it has to go in and touch the palate. Then only your yield will be good. Remember, no test has got 100% negative predictive value. Even a CT scan, if it is done early, it doesn't predict anything. And CT picture is positive for a long time. So if somebody has a CT picture being positive, RT-PCR negative, this, it could be a healed COVID also. So no test is 100% predictive. Always make sure you see the patient with all due diligence. Keep your paperwork and pathways clear. So in other words, be ready. So next comes, how do we protect yourself? What are the PPVs used? The most important will be environmental protection. We need to make sure structurally we are protected from that person. Always make sure you have a meter or two away from the patient. Make sure adequate distance is maintained. Make sure you wear a mask, the patient wears a mask. Usual three-ply mask is more than enough if you maintain adequate distance. You have to go near the patient, examine the patient in detail, then you have to wear an N95 mask. Like for instance, in your usual OPD, if you can put the chair away from you, maintain a longer distance, more than a meter, then your three-ply should be enough. But if you're going to be in a fever clinic, which is overcrowded, where you're not sure you can maintain a one meter distance, make sure you wear an N95. And if you're going to the COVID ward, where there's a lot of patients walking around, make sure you wear an N95 mask. So full PP is not just N95 mask. You should need to make sure ears are covered, your head is covered, your eyes are covered, you need to wear a full apron. So completely wear multiple layers. If multiple layers are especially important when you're going to have areas where there is aerosolization. The commonest area where aerosolization is occur is an ICU area where somebody is on NIV, somebody on BiPAP. So these, those areas make sure you layer yourself in multiple layers of things. I'm just talking about two areas. Hereafter, you can't have this crowded waiting lounges. It's not going to work out anymore. So if you look into this, you will realize See, you have seating arrangement. We have put the seats a meter apart. Remember, if it is more than 50% fill, then this model will not work. If you have more than 50% of the seating being taken up by COVID positive patients, it will not work out. Early into the epidemic, you can use your same lounge area. Make sure the seats are one meter apart. Everybody wears a N95 and wears a three-ply mask. The staff who is going to go near or do something can wear an N95 mask. Otherwise, three-ply should do. There is a meter difference between the reception and the counter. Make sure the toilets are cleaned every hour. Make sure the person doing toilet cleaning is fully protected. The water area, no common water areas. They supplied bottles to the patient. If you have to have a common water area, make sure it is cleaned frequently. 
make sure there's enough cross ventilation make sure there is a screening at the entry let's assume the numbers are becoming more if you have more patients coming in almost every other patient walking into your hospital is covid then you need to have an open area you need to have a counter where there will be a partition in between with this partition the person will be on the other side and patients will be on the other side they will have a meter distance and you will talk with them check the vitals the doctor will decide about the prescription and then they go off if they have some milling or something again if you have something kind of a rope put the table in front of it again make sure there is a meter distance and the patient is on the other side and the whole area should be open with lot of cross ventilation take my word how much ever you do things with ac and stuff it will not work out natural cross ventilation is probably the best for any fever clinic natural cross ventilation becomes very important as the numbers go up once you feel that more than 40 50% of your patients coming to the emergency or op or covid positive make sure you use these environmental controls so for a safe opd what do you do maintain a distance from the patient if you're going to examine the patient in detail wear n95 before and after seeing every patient we use a hand rub use a glove and touch the patient remove the glove wash your hands always make sure of maintaining the distance avoid touching your own face before washing your hands so let's say most of us have a consultation room like this hardly any cross ventilation if so keep your doors open make sure that you can leave the door and come into the room always maintaining 1 meter distance from the patient so keep the patient away from you get the history done and if you feel the patient is positive go out of the room make sure you plan about how what to do with the patient come back give it to the patient let the patient leave make sure the room is cleaned after each and every patient the cleaning has to be only in the surfaces it's going to be in for a shorter period of time the patient is in the room coughing for a longer time it has to be a longer cleaning let's say inpatient zone if you have a window make sure the window and door is open all the time please make sure the exhaust is towards outside the window is closed and if you open the door every time you open the door the whatever the air inside is going to come out so both of them being open helps a lot a partial opening should be more than enough so basically none of us want to become a contact and get isolated always maintain your physical distance of more than a meter wear a mask make sure you see patients in an area with adequate cross ventilation avoid touching as much as possible make sure you wash your hands frequently avoid touching your face so we have reached a stage where we can get patients from the community infecting our hospital staff also a hospital staff can come into the hospital from taking infection from the community so all the staff coming into the hospital they have to be screened every day you ask them for any symptoms and signs every area head for example nursing head in every ward head they will have to ask them every day if somebody is symptomatic they have to be isolated if any family member of a pay off a particular staff is symptomatic the, this particular person also has to be isolated make sure they are they do self report self reporting is very very important so like you know most of the other centers outside tamil nadu outside chennai may not be in this zone chennai now the numbers are going up so we are getting lot of these staff coming infected from outside but slowly as the numbers increases is bound to happen so what is defined as an exposure exposure is something where you are very near to a patient without an n95 mask or you have touched a patient and touched your face without washing hands in between in a room where there is niv or 
you know, somebody is in aerosolizing procedure, nebulization. You are intubating or resuscitating a COVID positive patient without protection. You are cleaning a room without a production or handling a dead body. Let's come to the proper session now. So I'm talking about somebody coming to a fever clinic with a COVID, a COVID positive report. He's a diabetic, he's 55 years old. Being a diabetic puts him under risk already. Now there are two things, how to protect ourselves and how to proceed with the diagnosis. I've already told you, this patient comes to the fever clinic. If your fever clinic is not crowded, can still stay there with, um, in, with a regular three-ply mask, ask from a distance, get the vitals checked. The vital shows no hypoxia, you can treat accordingly. You can make everything from a physical distance. The fever clinic is overcrowded, you don't have a choice, make sure. You need to go near the patient, examine them rather than patient coming beyond the counter, make sure you wear a full PPE. So most of them will commonly present with a respiratory syndrome. And I say respiratory syndrome, again it fills in. Somebody comes with fever and cold, somebody comes with a sore throat, somebody presents with anosmia, loss of smell, loss of taste. Some of them may come with shortness of breath. If the fever crosses for more than a week, please always consider pneumonia. Remember, in COVID, fever can be there for 14 days. I've had a patient who had fever for 16 days. Patient never required oxygen and went home. I didn't give him anything except supportive care. He just received vitamins. There's a VIP, lot of pressures from everywhere came in. He, this day, February for 16 days. By 17th day, fever started coming down. Had small spikes of 99 or something after that for a week and finally settled completely. We need to have tremendous amount of patience. Remember, even with prolonged fever, if they don't have hypoxia, if they don't have end organ damage, they're still a mild patient. So, when you consider pneumonia, when the fever is there for a long period of time, when they have significant cough, when they have breathlessness, a lot of times elderly people will not say anything. They will just say that I was okay. You told me COVID one week back, I was okay for five days. Now I'm feeling very tired and weak. Basically, they'll have some hypoxia, which they won't recognize. They come just with weakness and tiredness. That's also a predictor of pneumonia. One thing which we have noticed is this loss of smell is not seen very dramatically in patients presenting with pneumonia. Maybe our elderly cohort is not able to understand that. The weak presentation of weakness and tiredness is very classically seen in elderly. They may not recognize the fever. If you start monitoring it, you will have mild spikes of 100 or so. Diabetes and obesity. These are the two important things which are the major prognostic factors. So if somebody comes with COVID, we divide them to mild, moderate and severe cases. Mild or young individuals or those who are asymptomatic without any symptoms or mild symptoms, they have stable vitals, no comorbidities, majority of them do very well. You don't need to do anything, you just need to monitor the temperature, just give them vitamins for whatever use it may be, you don't need to give them anything. Like the patient I told you, 16 days of fever, no other problem, he was a diabetic under control. I just kept him on vitamins for 16 days and then he became alright. Even if the CT shows some pneumonia features, as long as the patient doesn't have, doesn't have hypoxia, they still come under mild category and mild category is going to be only supportive care. If they have high risk factors and if they are going to be bed bound, you can try giving heparin for them. But otherwise, there is no role for anything. Again, mild, mild category, we encourage a lot of fluids, we ask them to move around, we ambulate them. We don't try to put them in well completely. If they're going to be hypoxic only, then only we give them heparin and put them in bed. Then comes a moderate category. Moderate we divide into two categories. One group is the one who has got a lot of comorbidities, but they don't have hypoxia. Majority of management is like mild category. Only thing is we keep monitoring them much more closely because this group 
can develop hypoxia they may not be able to pick up hypoxia at times for example somebody around 70 they just talk about tiredness he may not pick up pick up hypoxia all the sudden that's you're talking about are all coming through this there is no sudden death in covid they they go for prolonged hypoxia as the hypoxia proceeds the heart gives up at some time and then they die so every death in covid is predictable only thing is some of them don't reach the hospital at all because when they come to you you find they are hemodynamically stable they you send them off being elderly and weak they just don't monitor and then slowly hypoxia sets up monitoring is very important in this moderate category because obviously now we don't have options to admit everybody so we need to make sure they are monitored well then the patients coming with hypoxia these people have to be definitely admitted we try to keep them dry so if they are going to be negative balance when they come in majority of them are a bit dehydrated when they come in often they are in neg- negative balance so first day we don't give diuretics unless they are very hypoxic looking food overload we monitor them for around 12 hours they still hypoxic they are looking good we give them diuretics sometimes when they come in fluid overload we give them initially we try to keep them dry i try to maintain on 300 to 500 liters in the ward if they are very sick we go for a major larger amount of negative balance we give them med vitamins we used to give them azithromycin because everybody was giving it now we are slowly trying to taper it off and stop it off too there is no role for azithromycin next heparin whenever we give heparin because these people have a coagulopathy they have a tendency to develop coagulopathy so heparin is definitely given and this group needs to be completely rested they cannot walk around this group definitely requests and we do something called as awake prone which i'll discuss in detail if the hypoxia is prolonged lot of time what happens they'll come to you they'll have a mild hypoxia within 6 hours we'll be able to take them off the oxygen that group i still don't prefer dexamethasone if the hypoxia is prolonged they require oxygen for quite some time you you anticipate oxygen requirement going up that's the group which is going to benefit from dexamethasone then all these uh, experimental drugs favipiravir remdesivir frankly we don't have enough data yet as i put it they're all experimental so we use it when the pressure builds up and you know the family keeps asking the patient keeps asking and the patient starts thinking despite all the measures use it as a end on thing whether they're going to really help we are not sure whether they're going to harm we are not sure next comes a severe category i mean you must have heard shridhar's lecture everything is kind of covered in that again you have to understand toxicomab and all are experimental steroids have a role again your proning heparin that's what's going to help you and more than anything wait wait and watch in the wards we use a very simple schema because as the epidemic advances you have too many patients you have too many calls you don't know where the patient is which patient is sick which patient is stable so we use three simple ways to monitor them one is fever because nurses also as the numbers increase the patient to nurse ratio will go down like you know will be one nurse monitoring six or eight patients so we don't want the nurses to miss out things so we use three things fever hypoxia patients having tachycardia despite fever being in control for 15 minutes or hypotension or any kind of organ specific deficits the patient have now of no problem in any of these we give them green coat they considered very stable if they have fever we call them we put them in endo category because they are still having some disease activity the patient has some hypoxia requiring some oxygen supplementation or some kind of hypotension or tachycardia or new end organ dysfunction they are all put at a red category so what will happen you will have every ward will have four or five red red category patients so the nurses will be able to call you and tell you specifically about red category also alone you also will have time to understand which is which patient is sick which patient is not sick similarly we teach every patient to every patient is given a pulse ox given a pulse oximeter we tell them to see the pulse oximeter use it and tell the system 
So if there's going to be two days of green, third day we plant discharge. So one more thing is a lot of people when they have prolonged fever, during the time of recovery from fever, they have a mild hypoxia. So that's also something we can easily monitor. Next important thing is about this awake proning. This is one thing which seems to show a lot of difference. Because what happens as the lungs become wet, there is going to be irregularity of ventilation. As you make sure that every area gets exposed, like putting yourself in various positions, ventilation probably improves to a significant extent. A lot of them get away with this before without going into ventilator. So one is you keep them sitting position or semi-sitting position for two hours, put them prone for two hours, more the lateral position of two hours. These two hours can start from half an hour, can go for proning even for six to eight hours depending upon the need. So for us, discharge criteria is very simple. Afebrile for three days, no supplemental option for three days. We don't use routine throat swabbing. We advise home isolation for two weeks. If there is a high risk case, we try to monitor SAO2 for two for a week. Now we are not able to do that. We give the we shifted the onus to the patient. They monitor with the pulse oximeter. We have given them a common line number. If they have a problem, they call the number. So I've completed more majority of issues in the first thing. Other two will be just differences. Now you have another male coming to you with fever for seven days. There is no localization. Can it still be COVID? This is a patient who has come to the OPD. They have not come to the fever clinic. He just come with fever. It's about seven days. So please remember, COVID can still present as an undifferentiated fever with no other localization. But still, it could turn out to be enteric fever. It could be your typhoid. It could be your dengue. It could be a malaria. So again, as usual, measure, see, examine them completely. Organomegaly is fairly unusual in COVID. Your CBC, CRP will give you a lot of idea. Please don't forget to do your blood cultures to root out enteric fever. Your malaria, dengue test. If there's more than a week of fever, do serologies for lepto and scrub. Along with that, please take an RT-PCR for throat swab. So now RT-PCR is negative. This is days after seven days of fever. Do we say it's not COVID? You're still waiting for the other reports to come. Dengue serology is negative. Malaria is negative. Blood cultures are waited. Can we assume it's not COVID? If there's going to be a, more than a week of fever, a lot of times what happens, your PCR becomes negative. By the time they develop pneumonia, there's quite a bit of immune activity, the throat PCR will be negative. Go for a HRCT. This is how the CT came up. This patient is probably having a pneumonia now. His throat swab is negative. He requires treatment as a COVID pneumonia. So this is how the antibody response and antigen or response points out. The PCR positivity is maximum in the first five to eight days. Five days for more or less, first five days for respiratory infection, may go up to eight days for pneumonia, not more than 10 days, even if you're present with diarrhea. Your antibody response starts around a week to two, sometimes around seven days, sometimes around 14 days. Lot of times your IgG and IgM can go parallelly too. So a lot of times it takes up to three weeks for your antibody response to be brisk. So the last scenario for the day, elderly patient admitted with fracture on day three develops fever. Now this gentleman was screened with a throat swab PCR on as soon as he was admitted, it was negative, CT test was negative. So can we assume it's non-COVID? You do an examination, check a CBC, take cultures because again you are thinking about other causes, urine routine, D-dimer, lower limb Doppler, but don't forget to repeat your throat swab now. Because once the epidemic becomes, it starts speaking, they all get exposed. They could have come in the incubation period. During the late incubation period, your PCR will be negative, your chest X-ray or CT will be negative. 
and the first day of fever your ct will again be negative wait patiently don't shift him to the cf to the theater immediately do a swab or wait for 48 hours see how the patient is and take the call remember the maximum infectivity will be the first day of fever make sure you isolate the patient don't forget the incubation period fine so please consider every patient to be a covid positive patient or an infected patient during the pandemic so make sure you minimize the contact time with each and every patient ensure your mask is well fitted before you enter see a patient closely and when you doff when you take your ppes off make sure you take give them adequate time and do it very slowly and methodically so next concentrate on housekeeping you do everything the housekeeping comes in infected he cleans the area he spreads it everywhere so the common mistakes we do surgical mask in the neck not using hand rub or cleaning your hands after removing pp forgetting the apron and running in a sleeveless apron it doesn't really work especially when you're going to be high risk covid area make sure your gown is tight properly remove and dispose the pp properly you know we do what we are used to so get used to it you don't have a choice for the next 6 months it's going to be there and probably forever and make sure you bin your ppes properly and last please don't forget the visitors policy lot of times the common example i give is i'll have a patient coming with mi he'll have some ct changes this patient's pcr will be negative very likely this patient has gone to the immune phase so he is not a risk to you but his family member who got exposed to him probably will be in the early infective phase so you may not get it from the patient you may get it from the attendant so always make sure your visitor policy attendant policy is clear make sure you protect yourself from them too thank you hi uh, we can take some questions shridhar hi hi so we'll start with the questions first question is samv in niv will it reduce work of breathing um so in pressure control mode uh, i prefer to use pressure control mode in niv you can also use the pressure support mode um, usually pressure control probably reduce the work of breathing a little bit more than pressure support the way you low is working is the patient will look comfortable and respiratory rate will come down the next question is which candidate do we advise admission and versus home quarantine basically anybody coming in category mild or asymptomatic we advise home quarantine next comes a moderate category that is people who have some comorbidities or who are older so this group we have to take it is a toss of a coin because when we have beds we were we were admitting initially as the epidemic becomes advanced we don't have enough beds lot of time when they are stable we give them a pulse oximeter we do advise them if they have a choice they can get admitted otherwise they are monitored but these elderly people it's always with a pinch of salt but take my word despite the age and comorbidities sometimes elderly people do really well but who becomes who does well and who sinks is very unclear at with one single point of presentation next question if a doctor has to do 6 hours duty in covid ward can he join the regular op the next day well um, it's a very see the point is there were two thought processes with regards to exposure there used to be a thought process that uh, the duration of exposure intensity of exposure we really don't have proof about uh, the intensity of exposure duration of exposure having to do something with the severity of illness so lot of assumption is uh, ppes we don't use properly so we get exposed so you need to have a period where your symptoms will come out 
so that we don't infect the usual patients but uh, take my word as long as you use your ppes properly follow the rules you should not be infected and you can carry on your normal activity dr shridhar can you take the next question anticoagulants for how long um so uh, if they are asymptomatic or mild there is no need for anticoagulation if they are moderate and they were admitted in hospital we use anticoagulation for prophylaxis alone if they got severe disease uh, we use intermediate dose anticoagulation like i said if i use daltabarin i use 5000 units bd and then if they are going home we make a decision based on how active they are some of them are pretty active and they go home they completely back to normal in them i don't generally use anticoagulation however if they are still going home on home oxygen we expect some limitation of movement and we expect it'll be a while before they get back to normal uh, then we would anticoagulate for 15 to 30 days these are all a little bit arbitrary but if any of them have had a proven clot during the stay in hospital either dvt or come back from home with a dvt or a pe then we would recommend anticoagulation as usual for 3 uh, to 6 months you can take the next question also dr shridhar is there any indication to use steroids beyond 10 days uh, absolutely not so even 10 days we don't strictly follow if we see the patient getting better after about 5 to 7 days itself we are itching to stop steroids because steroids has got other problems it can cause gastric bleed some of them become very weak and it can worsen steroid uh, induced myopathy Uh, managing their blood sugars become a problem already their stress their sugars are quite high on top of you steroids they are often normal patients are needing insulin um, we are also worried about secondary bacterial infections and we know steroids can make this worse so also the recommendation is 6 mg once a day for 10 days if you think the patient has gotten over this uh, severe phase you are happy to start stop it at 5 to 7 days itself definitely not not more than 10 days adding on to that like uh, our average duration of admission for a moderate category i'm not talking about severe categories 7 to 9 days which includes 2 days of non hypoxic period so basically majority of them by then we taper and stop it off there are some patients who start with 8 and then probably they go for they become realistic we may give them a pulsing too but it's an individual variation we try not to give steroid for a longer period of time to avoid immunosuppression next uh, dr vidya wants to know if rt pcr is positive toys and ct shows gga after lmwh will you consider fabi flu in asymptomatic patient to reduce viral load the answer is no we don't have proof and uh, if the patient is stable despite ggas in the ct without hypoxia we will treat them as mild case if they are asymptomatic we won't give anything including lmwh we will ask them to ambulate if there are high risk factors if they have coagulopathy aspirin is always put in low molecular weight is considered if the patient is non ambulant otherwise we are not giving that uh next question how to identify a covid 19 or not patient is covid 19 or not as few people seems normal when we see in opd as it is having a window period of 14 days unless a patient presents with symptoms you will not be able to figure out a patient having covid or covid now covid or not there is a play or two called as pre symptomatic phase where the patient may be infective but may not have symptoms that is a day before he has overt symptoms so during an epidemic every patient you meet every attender you meet is assumed to be covid positive so always maintain your 1 meter distance always make sure you wear a mask and don't touch unnecessarily 
नेक्स्ट क्वेश्चन श्रीधर I think you should take this question. Do vitamins really have a role in COVID-19? She does favorite question. <laughs> Absolutely no. Uh, but what I have had is I give so less medicines that I have had patients turn around and say, "For the medicines you are giving me, I could have stayed at home." So I encourage them to go home. Uh, vitamins, it is not really harmless. You know, our nurses are having to administer this frequently. It is an additional workload already overburdened nurses. So a uh, lot of my colleagues prescribe it. I enjoy crossing it out. See, I told you his favorite question. Next is false positive dengue serology in COVID. Yes, it can happen. So uh, apparently, you can have false positive reports with dengue, and also sometimes you can have false positive reports in chikungunya also. Now, till now we have not had the dengue season, so next two months we are going to have a tough time. But uh, we basically look into the clinical picture also. Think about RT-PCR, probably antibody testing. If they come present late in the immune phase, and then take a call. Abhishek. Yeah. So the next question is: uh, Does dexamethasone in diabetic patients with sugar spike needing insulin? Yes, it does. Even patients who are not diabetic, giving dexamethasone on top of a critical illness can cause the sugars to rise to a point wherein they need insulin. Yes, that happens. Uh, CT chest scoring any different in a patient with baseline lung pathology, COPD, old patient? No, it is more or less the same. uh the we can see the old pathology and we see the extent of normal lung involvement in these patients is it more or more or psychological vaccination that homeopathy non allopathic drugs are given or do they really help being an allopathic practitioners i don't know i don't give uh, homeopathic or other drugs vaccination we have to wait for that yes psychological intervention help even for doctors because we are also quite stressed now see i would like to answer the question too I believe a lot of the allopathy drugs itself don't work. Leave alone the homeopathy and non-allopathy drugs. So we are we the difference between the medicine we do and the medicine that other specialities follow is this: we want proof that it works. If we use our own drugs without proof, then there is no different from homeopathy. Then uh, CT score of twenty-one. What do you recommend? Uh, so uh, this is a. uh interesting question so the ct score of 21 means definitely the patient is sick i assume this score is 21 or 25 it means that the lung involvement is quite extensive it is 80% this is definitely severe covid uh, we will have to admit this patient in a critical care area and do all the things that i said during my talk so when do we repeat a ct if a patient is worsening you want to see whether there is sudden worsening then you repeat it or if you're thinking in terms of a trauma to the lung some bare trauma or something then you do it there is no role for routinely doing x-rays or repeating cts without any clinical correlation any role for antiplatelet agents aspirin patients with mild moderate symptomatic patient home quarantine if you are a diabetic about 60 65 especially uncontrolled sugars we always advise them to take aspirin because the rates of acute coronary syndrome seems to be pretty high in patients who have even recovered out of covid so we know that even in other other patients elderly patients admitted for other illnesses also any prolonged hospital stay prolonged icu stay the infection rates and uh, coronary event rates are much higher in the next 3 months same applies to covid too we are still waiting the data so if they have high risk we always advise aspirin three the success rate of intubation 
difficult question. So, uh, reports coming from various countries abroad, the success rate. In other words, the people who survive intubation ranges from 30 to 50 percent, depending on center to center. Within Chennai, speaking anonymously, um, it depends to a large extent on the uh, group of patients you're taking. If you're taking a lot of patients who are 80, 85, 90 and intubating all of them, clearly your success rate will become low. Whereas if you're form, forming some form of, uh, you know, uh, triage and saying we'll intubate only those patients who have got the best possibility of recovery, then clearly your intubation rate, uh, your success rate from intubation will be higher. It depends on the population that you're addressing. I know that's not a the answer, that it's not a clear-cut answer, but uh, it depends on the substrate, depends on the denominator. We probably will be able to answer after three more months. Then steroids and CRRT. Uh, steroids lead to hyperglycemia, can cause water and electrode imbalance due to osmotic diarrhea. So would you still run your patient dry? Does it increase the need for CRRT? Um, so I, I like running my patients dry. But however, I've also had patients who have come to me after uh, uh, quite sick, after 10 days of fever. And to start off with, itself, they have got uh, acute kidney injury. The urea is about 120, creatinine is about 2. So these are people who have become dehydrated as a consequence of their illness, fever, inadequate oral intake. So clearly, do not be wise to run these patients dry. Uh, as I said, the sick patients who are uh, hypoxic and needing a lot of oxygen, I would like to run them dry. And by and large, I know the extent to which I'm running them dry by looking at the urea. So urea will rise to about uh, double what it normally does, and I'd be happy with that. Uh, and then uh, I would wait and see. Uh, that would sort of be my threshold for which I would confidently diuris. One of the patients who we intubated, the urea actually tripled. Uh, but we continued doing, we, we stopped it and she was extubated in about seven days, which is sort of a, you know, a record because most uh, people who get intubated stay intubated for about 10 to 14 days from Western data. So I think uh, we know from previous viral ARDS that running people dry shortens their time on ventilators. Role of intermethazone in improving oxygen saturation, hypoxic period, no, there's no role. Next, uh, see the diuretics guidelines. You want to give them a rough guideline or anything? Um, rough guideline is, uh, uh, once again, if the patient is already dehydrated, already got acute kidney injury because of the underlying illness, then clearly you would not want to aggravate this by making them by drying them out. But if they came with normal urea and they are hypoxic and they're not very sick, then we like to give um, simple IV fluzumide because they are in the ward in order to reduce their workload on the nurses. But if they are sick and they're coming to ICU, I like to run a fruzumide infusion. This will ensure that they don't pass a huge amount of urine at one time, but gradually you get them dry over 24 hours, also reducing the chance of hypotension in these patients. So if they are uh, stable on the ward, 40 milligram BD sounds reasonable. If they are in a critical care area, anywhere between 2 milligram per hour to 10 milligram per hour, depending on how sick we are. No absolute values. Try and get them negative by about 500 ml every day. Somebody asked about ivermectin. We don't know. We don't use. It's again um, somebody's hypothesis. Now, somebody wants to know when do, when do we think that COVID will get away? We can go back to routine. It's very difficult to say. It's going to be with us. It's not going to go away anyway. Probably another three to six months, we may go back to regular routine. Our regular routine will never be the same again. Next, uh, CT bad after two weeks. You think of antivirals? Sridhar? Um, I don't think of antivirals even in the first week. So after two weeks, definitely no role. 
uh, in the first week of illness is when the viral replication is maximum. So if you think that it might be benefit, probably there is a time to try. Definitely not over two weeks. Uh, and I would personally, I can talk confidently. Personally, I would not take it even the first week for me also, for my family. If, uh, is there a chance of uh, getting COVID-19 again? See, you can have relapses. We've had a patient who was with us with CT changes and initially COVID-PCR being negative. She came back after a month. She was on steroids and ATT because we were thinking about TB meningitis because she had some meningitis and stuff. She had a COVID positivity. So these kind of uh, recrudescence relapses are seen throughout in India. It happens around a month or one, one and a half months at the maximum. Reinfection, as of now, we seem to be getting enough evidence of good immunity. At least immunity seems to be there for at least three to six months. So reinfection rates is something which we are not worried about at this point of time. Elective surgery, RT-PCR positive at least two weeks. Would you prefer IV infusion or subcutaneous control to in insulin to control hyperglycemia? Sliding scale, even the sliding scales are labor intensive. Uh, so it depends on what you have. So uh, our ICU is uh, still well stopped. So in ICUs, I'd like to use IV. But clearly, if I'm using it outside ICU and the patient is, there's no, no other indication of the patient to come to ICU, for both safety reasons and labor intensive reasons, I would, I'm happy to use subcutaneous insulin as well. Role of lifestyle modification with steam inhalation, salt water goggling, hypothetical healthy food, Activity, because they say if, you're, if your physical activity is good, if you're not obese, it helps, but nothing in the short term. Indication of ECMO, Sridhar? So uh, ECMO is probably indicated if uh, your maximal treatment, which in this case would be intubation and ventilation, despite that the patient is hypoxic and the patient is continuing to deteriorate, uh, then ECMO can be considered. Uh, how long? Uh, depends on how long it takes to, for the patient to get better. Sometimes people have stayed in ECMO for weeks together before they get better. Now, next one more question about uh, what is advice to practicing physician, what to do and when to refer. So basically, the, the re biggest reason where we lose patients is hypoglycemia. The hypoxia is so slow. Patient's body gets so used to it, they don't really recognize it. So uh, most of us don't even figure out that we have hypoxia. So that is something which needs to be monitored. So if you have a patient coming in with COVID or fever, you have a doubt, some of them don't even want to do tests. Make sure they we monitor their hypoxia. There's a simple pulse oximeter which they can use at home. If there is hypoxia, they have to go for admission. They have to be monitored. Oxygen, oxygenation is very important. So if it's young, asymptomatic, they're panicking, normal oxygen saturation, no features of acute coronary, they can very well be at home. Anybody, if there is hypoxia, if the patient's not looking good and use something with any end organ dysfunction, then they have to be referred, including a kidney involvement or a stroke or chest pain, anything, anything out of ordinary, they have to be referred out. Any role for MMR? No, we didn't, still don't have proof that MMR has any kind of uh, protection against SARS-CoV. Do we need a separate team to look after COVID? Sridhar? Um. Practically, I don't think it's possible. I think our resources are uh, stretched. I don't think it's, I think if you ask me openly, I think uh, we have to use all the resources we have currently to target this, which is overwhelming us to divide what we have into two and it's not uh, ideal. It's like in the face of an enemy dividing your uh, army into two groups. 
Next is LMWH and elective LSCS. In asymptomatic COVID, you treat them, in an asymptomatic COVID patient, treat them as a normal uh, patient because asymptomatic COVID is just a colonizer. They don't have any kind of uh, pathological problem with their lungs. So we don't treat them any differently. Do you see patients with complications developing after two weeks? Initially mild for the first two weeks. So basically, it's a very slow progressing hypoxia. So if you ask them and prod, they will say that they've had mild fever. So it's not like it never comes up. Somebody doesn't have fever, completely fine. After suddenly, after two weeks, they develop a sudden hypoxia. It doesn't happen that way. They will have some low-grade fevers. There'll be some hypoxia which goes on and on. Then they become sick. One event which can happen after some time is MI. The acute coronary event seems to be much higher in this group. They recover out of COVID and then they, they can develop an MI and come back. So generally, most of the patients who develop hypoxia or present late have been having mild hypoxia and fever for some time. Uh, somebody wants to know, do we need negative pressure in OT? If you can get a negative pressure done in OT, it's extremely good. If you can't, the few things which you can do is, so in the OT, make sure you take full protection, including your N95 mask, make the ceiling, it, ceiling being really good. And make sure you go for the spinal or local rather than GA whenever it's possible. If it's not an emergency case, try to avoid operating for at least one or two weeks, at least not in the first five days when they're extremely symptomatic because the maximum infectivity starts from the day of symptom onset. And the maximum infectivity will be the first three to five days, at least tied over that period if it's not an emergency surgery. If it's an emergency surgery and patient comes in symptomatic and they are COVID positive, Make sure your N95 is completely sealed. You're fully done. If you can, you can actually uh, stop your AC for some time. Make sure there is no positive pressure for some time and take them up. If, it's, if you can't, no problem. Seal yourself. Complete the surgery. Keep the patient in the theater for some time. You go out and then shift the patient straight to isolation area. Close the OT doors for another hour and then start cleaning. Increase in procal. Does it indicate secondary bacterial infection? It can. Sometimes a procal elevation, the patients don't do well. You start antibiotics whenever procal is elevated. When the procal elevation is there, your cultures are all negative. Uh, isolated procal elevation as the patient sinks is not a good sign. Next is uh, staph, low-grade fever, COVID negative, 48 hours, cultures negative, CT chest, old fever, how long to quarantine? So if it's COVID negative, then you treat as a normal person. If the patient has been exposed to COVID, you assume they've got COVID. Once the symptom stops, at least 10 days after that. So roughly around 14 days, it'll come to. How to differentiate from swine flu? Can we put on oseltamivir? You can't differentiate from swine flu clinically. If your COVID is positive, there is no role for oseltamivir. Uh, Sridhar, can you take this question? Relationship between COVID and AKI? COVID and cardiovascular system. Uh, yeah, so uh, once again, the reports internationally are varying. Uh, They're saying acute kidney injury. The, vary, the reports from all over the world are uh, different. Some people are reporting as low as 5% incidence of acute kidney injury in the COVID patients. Some people are reporting as high as 30%. So I think it varies a lot depending on your underlying population. I per se have not seen COVID-induced acute kidney injury. I've seen a bit of dehydration cause some mild... Like one patient. Yeah, and also people who have had uh, previous chronic kidney disease coming in, that's much more common because I think people with CKD, their immunity is lower. So I think it's much more likely that they, they get COVID compared to others. There's one question on pregnant COVID women, 20, COVID negative women, 24 hours back, mild temperature, in labor, 
leukocytosis, CRP raised. See, when you have a doubt, assume the patient is COVID positive. Take your precautions when you operate on them or induce labor because the worry is you getting infected from the patient. You have all the time once the emergency is over. During the emergency, wear full PPE, put it on, put them in a separate room, put them on droplet precautions. You can anyway repeat your swab or repeat a CT and take the call afterwards. So I have one on when the relatives put pressure on using experimental drugs. Uh, how do I handle it? I think this is a very common problem that all of us are facing. See, we, I, I don't make the distinction between homeopathy and allopathy quite casually. We uh, are using drugs that were developed by indigenous medicines. We use artisanate, which was from a Chinese herbal product. We use digoxin. So the question is, does it work or not? That, that is the key question. And I think as a, all allopathic medicines that if used inappropriately or equivalent to homeopathy. Uh, having said that, the trouble that we are now facing is that there is a lot of experimental drugs. I think we all, we all know about at least 20 drugs that we all uh, here are being trialed upon. And we do not know what the results of these studies would be. So what I tell the family members of people who are demanding experimental drugs, I do not believe it works. I personally would not use it. But we should be mindful that it's quite possible six months down the line or a year down the line, a study might show that one of this 30 or 40 drugs could potentially benefit in a very small number of patients. Like I said, we are saying DEX is a lifesaver. But remember, if we give 20 people on hypo hypoxic, uh, on hypoxia uh, DEX, only one of them will benefit. So 24 of them will not benefit. And even that is touted as a major, major benefit. So it's quite possible that one of the 20 drugs that we are not using or considering chemotherapies might one year down the line show some benefit. And we might have a family that would regret that we did not use that medicine. So I'm quite clear when I speak to such families, I say, I will not use it for myself. I will not use it for my family member. But if you feel strongly that this can potentially benefit, I'm happy to go along and respect your wishes just so that they feel that there was no stone left unturned in the care of the attendants. So I take a pragmatic way. Or mild cases allowed to walk or exercise. We encourage mild patients to walk, take plenty of fluid. In contrary to moderate patients and those requiring hypoxia where we fluid restrict. Because mild patients generally they do well. They don't really have a wet, hugely uh, pneumonic lung. So good hydration, managing fever, walking around decreases the chance of coagulopathy. Uh, we generally don't do a six-minute walk test in the OPD because we don't want to infect people around us. If there is hypoxia, they have to be put on bed. Otherwise, they have to walk. No strenuous exercise though. Then uh, difference, when do you use three-ply three ply, and when do you use N95? If you're away from a patient in an area with good cross-ventilation, three-ply mask is more than enough. If you have to examine a patient at close quarters, like just not take a like say pulse oximeter usage or something. You have to examine a patient completely, put a line, or you're going to go into an area with a lot of COVID patients, then you wear a N95. Uh, Sridhar, how long can we maintain patients on HFNO, provided the patient is maintaining SPO2 of 90? Uh, there's no upper limit. In fact, uh, sometimes when patients get better and their FIO2 comes down to 30 or 40%, and I expect a long course, I would leave them on HFNO because on a long course of giving oxygen through some other thing, using cold, dry air may not be that beneficial. Uh, but once again, we're in a pandemic situation. It is quite possible that a patient has improved to the point they don't, don't need HFNO, but somebody else might benefit from that. At which point, we need to make a, 
judgment on who's who's going to need it most and who's going to benefit most upper limit no limit you can continue people are on home oxygen for years high flow oxygen which is humidified and uh, warm uh, there's no upper limit on duration of use credit in an ldh as prognosticators see, uh, we have not found a great uh, prognostic benefits with peritone ldh even il6 it's a very slow progressing hypoxia unlike the western belief of this intense cytokine storm nobody develops a sudden cytokine storm and cr and just crashes down it's a very slow process which goes on for days and the ferritin ldh may have some kind of a role in diagnosing but serial monitoring we have not found any trends in both of them um shridhar spo2 below 92 otherwise asymptomatic should we admit and monitor my uh, answer would be yes yeah i i think yes. so i i think so too uh, because it's below 92 you don't know at what position you don't know how the disease is going to progress over the next few days um always below 92 i'd worry about them i would definitely advise admission and monitor in your hospital any non covid patients become covid lot of times your first covid sample may not be positive if your prediction of covid is very high repeat the covid test don't go by one covid test alone and if the clinical suggestion is extremely high even if the no two covids are negative and ct is suggested till assume them to be covid keep them in covid area don't allow a free way for the attenders because cross you can get it and get yourself infected from the attendants too anything else they've got too many questions prophylaxis for doctors who treat covid none a good properly fitted mask and good full ppe so if uh, covid positive after 2 weeks isolation uh can we avoid home isolation um, covid don't repeat covid test and it's also important to see that in case it has been repeated from the day of onset of symptoms nobody has been proven to be infectious after 11 or 12 days you can still be positive because remember the rt pcr is only testing for rna dead virus will still be shed and it, the rt pcr will pick up dead virus and come back as positive and in fact you are non infectious i would say from the time of onset of symptoms two weeks afterwards you are extremely unlikely to be infectious even if the rt pcr which you shouldn't do turns out to be positive see the risk of aggravation of thrombosis of maintaining negative balance interesting question uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah that is that is true uh, but remember i'm not using prophylactic daltaparin i'm using intermediate dose daltaparin See, that, that's his innovation that's his particular his own innovation no, i i don't know it's a it's a true question it's a valid question and yeah it is possible but we're using a slightly higher dose of daltaparin nobody knows which is going to benefit whom but in somebody i think i think the key goal is if they are severely hypoxic they are very likely to end up on the ventilator and they are also likely to get a dbt or a clot but they are much more likely to end up on the ventilator so i focus on my immediate problem in severely hypoxic patients which is to try and stop them from getting uh, ventilated we have not had any patient that way till now touch wood so we are actually going in probably the right path covid positivity is not an indication for lscs if the patient is hypoxic then you go ahead with lscs because you want to because once the baby comes out uh, we had a patient presenting with around 37 weeks hypoxic very high ct score uh once the lcs was done the next day the, the lady needed oxygen third day we were able to take her off oxygen we discharged her on on the fourth or fifth day 
N95 mask reuse, we still don't reuse in clinical area. So non-clinical area, sometimes it's reused. Clinical area, COVID areas, we don't use, reuse it. And sterilization, there's been some data on plasma sterilization. So AIMS, they ask them to put it in a bag and keep it for four or five days and reuse it. Still, uh, data is limited. So COVID areas where you come across a lot of patients who are infected, try avoiding reusing. Shridhar, you want to take this question? Yeah, Mortality, one? morbidity in LSCS patients with COVID. We haven't uh, seen any. Yeah, so young patient, otherwise fit and well, uh, they, they all do extremely well. Somebody wants to know if a COVID patient becomes COVID positive in the hospital, are we penalized? Do we take consent? Uh, if patient becomes positive, are we penalized? Well, no, this is an epidemic. And uh, like when there is a, it's a pandemic. So people can get infected anyway. We cannot be penalized. We, we do take a letter of undertaking. I think most hospitals are doing this. They take a letter of undertaking. They, they sent a mail saying that uh, in a pandemic, you cannot be legally penalized. That's the legal opinion. Okay. Any other questions? False positive PCRs. Yes. Like uh, uh, the false positivity rate in a single PCR will be less, but then your PCR can remain positive for even six to eight weeks where the patient has recovered from the infection, but PCR can still be positive. Atypical presentation, we've had a GBS, we've had MI, we've had patients presenting with one patient with a kidney injury, we've had a patient with arrhythmia, we've had a patient with, uh, we have patient presenting with conjunctivitis, presence with mouth ulcers, then a um, lot of patients with uh, uh, loss of smell. Anything else, Sridhar? Atypical presentations, MI strokes, we had quite a few patients with strokes. And strokes, yes. And we, do strokes. Have, we do have some uh, couple of patients with GBS, one of whom is positive. Once again, it's hard to say whether this is uh, incidental or causative. And yeah, I think that's it. Suddenly, it's not coming to my mind. I think there are too many questions. Can we just answer the rest? Uh, you want to take some more? Okay. Negative fluid balance maintenance in a renal, renal compromise scenario. How to handle it? So, uh, so once again, I think the question is uh, how, how, how to handle it is if this is chronic renal disease, then we anyway like to run them uh, uh, needing dialysis, then anyway we like to run them on, on a negative thing. But if we believe improving the perfusion will improve urea and creatinine, then I would give the fluid gently. Uh, period of infectivity is symptomatic. You remember, we have a phase where initially patient has a lot of virus. The virus goes through the blood and is secreted out through the secretions. Then what happens? Body's immunity takes over. During that phase, P1 can still be there. They have presentation with pneumonia, sometimes with uh, all those immune manifestations, some kind of serious CNS manifestation, other manifestations come. Um, generally, people are not infective after the immune phase sets in. The immune phase can set in as early as five days. It can go up till... 10, 12 days at the maximum 14 days. Patients are seldom infective after 14 days, but we have had a couple of cases. I think some abroad too, where the patient RT-PCR has been positive after some time with symptoms. These patients are assumed to be relapses. Uh, what is the percentage? How do we predict it? We are still not sure. But uh, majority of patients, I would say more than 99% of our patients will be non-infective after a week's time, despite having fever. Encephalitis, we have had one doubtful case, but uh, not much. 
Any other question? If attender is positive, do we consider the patient as suspect even if she is negative? Yes. And uh, the point, the patient could have been the primary attender, could have got it from the patient or the patient could be in the incubation period. So you need to take the precautions. Any questions? If COVID positive, then became negative, no need to take, you can just treat the patient as a usual patient. Yes, we are categorizing patients into COVID and non-COVID area. We try non-COVID patients, we completely have cleared different zones and there is no admixing. Any other questions? Patient with COVID, not tachypneic, no increase in respirator, respiratory rate, but SP out of 85. So this is how we classically see our patients. Uh, they walk to the OPD. They will just say, I'm tired, have some low-grade fever. You measure their SPO2, it will be 75, it will be 85. So this is how elderly patients present to us. So we need to be really careful. They will not recognize hypoxia. They will not be clearly tachypneic. This is the group which has to be admitted, which has to be monitored stringently. They are the ones who can go for death, sudden death. Suddenly you'll find them being unconscious or some sudden MI, sudden deaths are all this group of people. Case numbers down in North Madras due to herd immunity, probably it could also be because uh, they were managed well, they were made to stay indoors. Anything is possible. In... In OP building, can we give one floor to COVID patients? Depending upon your pathways, yes. Three-ply layer over an N95 mask, double masking. Uh, you can, but still, uh, if it's going to be a COVID area, especially if you're going to be in ICU and all, I would, I would still be against reusing N95. If you're going to be in the OPD, not seeing many patients, if you're just going to walk around in the fever clinic, maybe you can. But ICU areas, areas where there is aerosolization, try avoiding reusing the N95. So the simple logistic, you, why do you cover yourself from head to foot? This is a droplet mediated infection. You don't want any surface of your body to harbor the virus and then you don't want it going through your eyes or nose. And N95, you don't want to breathe it. So breathing, you have anyway stopped. If you go out, if you touch the exterior of the mask and touch your face, again, you're going to get infected. If it's a non-aerosol zone, yes, maybe yes. But if it's going to be in the aerosol zone, no reuse. I think that's it. Thanks, Dr. Sridhar. Anything else? No, nothing else. So, uh, thank I you. I think you have one more question. HFNO with saturation of 85 to 88, non-tachypnic, conscious alert. Do we need to intubate? Even I want to know the answer. <laughs> um, have you dried the patient out? Have you tried different positions of the patient? That would be the question. I would try drying the patient out. So this is a kind of patient I would really aggressively dry out because we are on the edge. We are very close to intubation. So this patient had give a big dose of frusamide bolus and follow it up with 10 milligram per hour and uh, definitely prone this patient. This is uh, zoonotic transmission is probably yes. Airborne transmission, it is droplet. It's uh, the particles are larger. So they settle down by a meter's time. If somebody is singing, somebody is shouting, it may go for a slightly larger distance, but it is not like TB organism, which can stay suspended in the air for a longer period of time. It is definitely not like TB or chicken pox, but it can stay for a longer time. I think that's it. Thanks a lot. We had a wonderful time. If there are any more questions, we'll take it up. We will message the answers back. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you, Arnold.